Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast brought to you by Callum Chain and Luke Zadkovich from ZFZ. How are you today, Callum? I'm very good, Luke. How are you? Good. Good, good. Um, looking forward to this case today. Um, we're dealing with a case that's kind of come back to us in a way. We're now in the Court of Appeal on a on a decision that we talked about some time ago. It's fun when these ones come back. I, I don't remember exactly what my view was on this one at the uh, at first instant, but um, I hope that I read with the with the judge because it's been upheld. Well, yeah, part, the the ultimate decision was upheld, but. I think I think on one of the key points, the decision was kind of overturned from first instance. So, so I think that makes for a really interesting discussion. And I could be wrong, but I'm I'm basing it on my recollection of the name of the last episode. And we really should have probably gone back and looked <laughs> or listened to our old episode. But um, I want to say the last one was a bill a bill is born maybe, and we had Joe Gosden on. Is that does that sound right to you? It could have been just you and Joe because I I can't remember this case, this case I I couldn't remember this case before. Um, so maybe that's one where just you and Joe did it together. That could be it. That might be why you don't remember it. But I was reading this when I was reading it. I thought we must have done this one before, but I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember the. Um, I couldn't remember the, the decision. Um, but it is fascinating, like you say. You're right. The this is actually effectively, to all intents and purposes, from a legal perspective. An overturning of the high court decision. Um, ultimately, it ends up being the same way the appeal is dismissed. But the, on the key point of law, the court of appeal goes a different direction, and it's a really interesting question. It's a, it, it's a, this is a really good, a really good case, right in the kind of shipping and commodities sweet spot. Um, a fantastic judgment by Lord Justice Popplewell. Uh, it's it's a really interesting one. I'm looking forward to getting stuck into it. Yeah, and as we've been talking, I couldn't help myself but look back at our our. Uh our past episodes, and we're right. It, it was Joe Gosden and me who talked about oh, it. Yeah. So it we'll forgive you for not remembering how you <laughs> how you <laughs> viewed this case first time around because you weren't on the pod. <laughs> exactly. There we go. I'm I'm glad I've been acquitted. Good stuff. Well, look, I'm ca- I'm looking forward to catching up with you next week in um, New York, Callum. Uh, yeah. The 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 Silver Bell Awards dinner. That should be good. We have a little plan to do a sort of key summary of the real headline raisers of 2023 so far um doing that to an audience of some of our clients in our offices and we will we will try and get that recorded and we might make that an episode just a quick recap a lot of them will be cases that our listeners will have heard us discuss before but just in real short sharp snappy format five minute summary of what you need to know about the most important seven or eight decisions of the year so far i think that would be quite a um, and quite an exciting thing for us to try and do, given that we're used we're used to uh, spending a lot of time postulating over over one case. Yeah, exactly. It, it's a, a summary of case by case, or a case by case of case by case. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, all right. Let's get into it. This is the decision of UniCredit Bank and Euronav. Um, as we mentioned, we're now in the Court of Appeal in England. Um, it's an appeal from the first instance decision of Mrs. Justice Mulder, um, and was handed down recently on the 4th of May, 2023. The neutral citation number is 2023 EWCA CIV 471. Um, and the Court of Appeal comprised of Lady Justice Asplin, 
Lord Justice Popperwell and Lady Justice Falk. Um, as I say, Unicredit are the claimant appellant and Euronav is the defendant respondent. Um, and I think probably it's worth setting out from the outset that there are, there are two main issues um, that are, are dealt with in this case. One relates to um, the status, if any, of a bill of lading um, where uh, the bill had been in the hands of the charterer and the charterer um, novated that charter party on to, um, uh, to a receiver uh, and what was the status of that bill of lading. Um, that's kind of one in broad issue to unpack in some detail. And then the other issue, uh, which actually was the decisive issue in this appeal, um, was a causation point. And that was, well, even if the owners had gone to um, the proper holders of the bill of lading um, and sought um, some type of guidance on whether the, the goods should be discharged without presentation of bills, that the bank, as the proper holder, albeit probably notified through the um, through the notified party of the shipper BP um, that the bank probably would have said yeah go ahead and discharge anyway um, and so there was a, a causation no loss argument and that ultimately prevailed here before we kind of unpack those two um, key legal issues and and the decision really is split into on 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 dealing with those two aspects should we just in summary form go through the key facts? Callum. It's, it's quite a fact-heavy dispute, although the principle, the general principle of that first limb of the judgment is, is really one which is of broader application. But here we have a, a cargo of oil which is being sold from BP uh, to Gulf Petrochem FZC. As part of that sale, Unicredit are providing trade finance. So BP enter into this agreement. Um, it's an ex-ship contract. And BP have voyage chartered a vessel from the owners, vessels the Siena, and the owners were Euronav. Uh, BP have chartered the vessel in on voyage charter terms. Owners then issue a bill to BP. BP then take the um, take the payment from Unicredit, who are who are Gulf's trade financing bank. Uh, Unicredit take the bill as security over the cargo that they've advanced the payment for. And um, BP then novates the charter party to Gulf. Gulf then instructs the um, owners to discharge the ship and the, the cargo is discharged against an LOI. Ultimately, the bank is not paid and the bank brings a claim against the, uh, against the owners for uh, misdelivery, for, for delivering the cargo to a person who is not the holder of the bills. The interesting point here is the extent to which owners have a contract under the bill, um, because in the, the the ordinary way that this would um, that, that this well, the, it, it, in in ordinary circumstances, if owners have a voyage charter party with BP and they issue a bill to BP, then the bill in the hands of BP is a mere receipt. That's, that's the kind of mere receipt rule, as they as they call it. I'm not sure we can call it that anymore, given. Given this this judgment and the kind of authoritative review of the history of that of that rule that um, Lord Justice Popperwell looks through in, in detail, but the rule is, well, the rule was that the the bill in the hands of the charterers is a mere receipt. 
the question here is all around the point at which the bill stops being a mere receipt and starts being a contract of carriage with, uh, with, with Golf or with Unicredit. Um, and, and the owners. Yeah, thanks. Uh, that's, a, that's a good summary, if you don't mind me saying, Callum. Um, what, I, what I wanted to say on this, it's something that uh, the law students and, and indeed um, associates have heard me say many times is, I think this is a, a, an excellent example of a case where you start with a diagram yeah. <laughs> where, where, where you actually draw out where all the parties are how they fit into it. Oh, there you go. Yeah, okay, I've got mine. I, I've got mine here on, on a piece yeah, of paper too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's how you do it. It's funny how you and I, after all these years of practice, we still go back to that principle and that, well, that approach um, serves us very well. And it does. Yeah, I think, I think it's re- really important here to kind of understand um, what's happening in a kind of diagrammatic way and makes it much clearer. And you have the, inter- the interplay between the sale contract and the, and the ocean contracts. And these cases really draw out the fact that those two things are very, very closely connected. Yeah. And, and you, you, also, you also have, um, it's not just the kind of basic scenario of um, charter party structure with a bill overlaying that and an LC and the bill you know, passing through LC for payment, um, letter of credit LC. Um, it, you also have the interplay um, of the LOI, and here you also have a novation of a charter party, which is um, not regularly seen, at least not regularly seen in cases. I know it happens out there in, in, in practice in quite a bit. Um, but why that's important is because, in particularly in the oil trade, um, there has been a practice that's developed around, I would say, a more kind of lackadaisical approach to the function of a bill of lading or the traditional functions of a bill of lading. Um, and this judgment, in a way, is it gives the bill more authority again um, on the first issue, but it practically raises more issues, I think, um, uh, in, on the second causation issue, which we'll come on to in a moment. Um, but I, I've, I've had this view for a while that um, there has been a practice that's developed over many years where the, the, the discharging against an LOI becomes almost a matter of course. And in doing so, the parties um, kind of undermine the traditional function of a bill of lading in some ways. And when you then overlay that with novation of a charter party as well, there is this residual issue around what is the function of the bill of lading? Does it hold as good security as, as it has always been intended to? Now, I think this judgment actually, you know, by overturning the first instance, gives the bill much more power again. But I raise that. It's, it's, more, a, um, it's more a commentary on um, the use of LOIs and, and, and how they're not without danger. And this is something that you and I have commented on a number of times before in other cases, but this is a really good case to look at it. There's another case that we're going to deal with on on the pod coming up that also looks at bills of lading as well um, and, and delivery. So yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting one. The, the the practice that you're that you're describing it emerges almost from a comfort that an LOI does a similar thing to a bill, where you have a similar level of protection under an you know as between the bill and the LOI, you have a similar level of protection. And actually, the, the two documents are very different. And the and the LOI 
is it really pales in comparison compared to the rights that you have as somebody who holds a bill. If you, you know, if you if you have a if you do something wrong with with the protection of an LOI, then really the protection is not as strong as you might hope. No, no, I was going to say. Well, on that though, Callum, one of the reasons you see it here to to such an extent, including that the charter party can be novated and then golf in this case steps in as the charter and starts giving instructions and you know an LOI from that charter is, is accepted one of the reasons why you see it um in the oil trade particularly and why it's so prevalent here is because of the strength of the parties involved yeah. and most of the players in this type of trade are significant parties where um, the, the the big risk under a letter of indemnity is that the party issuing the letter of indemnity is not good for it. Like that's the big risk, right? Yeah. Um, and in the oil trade, particularly, that's not as that's typically not as big a risk. Although the sums involved are massive, but it's typically not a big risk because you're dealing with the the majors um, and big players that have the might to to deal with these types of issues. Um, not so with a company like Golf, it seems. Um, uh, you know, at least on the facts of this case, anyway, I don't really know anything about golf, but yeah. um, uh, yeah, it's um, it, it, it's really interesting, and I think it, when you when parties are setting up these kinds of processes and um, you know, working in practice with an LOI or there's an ovation of a charter party and. You know, this is just how it's done. We always do it this way. It's quicker. We, the bill hasn't arrived mm. at the discharge port yet, so let's just get the cargo off and move on with things. There, there can be, and it's understandable, but there's a there's a tendency to say, okay, let's just move on without actually thinking about what is happening here. What is the risk that we're taking on by doing this every single time and delivering against an LOI or, or an ovated charter party? I think the answer probably is in electronic bills. You know, there's good technology yep. that works well with bills. You can you can retain the all of the rights under a bill that you would otherwise have. You don't have the issue around can we you know will where where is the bill? Can we get the bill in, in time for discharge? You, all of those things can actually be dealt with. That you know they're, they're there are tech solutions out there that allow you to retain all the rights that you need, but have the convenience of a um, or the immediacy that you would otherwise get by an LOI. I, I, it's it's increasingly common to see to see e bills, but they haven't permeated the industry quite as quickly as I thought they might when um, when I was first kind of became aware of the way that e bills could work and the the you know the the idea of being able to have a have a the secure store of value on, on you know on blockchain systems for example I, I thought that bill of a bill of lading would be one of the first use cases that would really fly um it's not happened quickly but i do wonder the more that you see cases like this the more that there's the primacy of the bill as the key document in the in the ocean carriage you may see more parties kind of taking a look at this and and maybe the legal team stepping in and saying actually e-bills are the right solution here well i think they're the right solution for a number of reasons um and as you know this is a, a an area that i've been really involved in i actually wrote my dissertation for my master's degree mm -hmm. over 10 years ago on moving the commodity trade um into e-platforms and i looked at the functions of a bill of lading and all of that and i've been involved in 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 a project um uh in this space but it's it, it goes to both of the issues in this case. It goes to um, 
the bill of lading of how how a bill of lading works and how it can work more practically from a um, a time perspective. You can get rid of LOIs and all the rest of it, at least for for this particular um, issue on delivering without uh, original bills of lading. You might need LOIs for other things, but um, for that issue, you can get rid of LOIs and you can really allow a bill to work in the way that's intended. But also on this second issue of um, causation, Callum, when you think mm. about it, like from a bank's perspective, by having an electronic system where you can rely on the bill, you're actually avoiding the the kinds of allegations that were made here where, well, what would you have done? Well, we wouldn't have gotten into that scenario because the bill would have been ready to go. Yeah. The bill would have had, there would have been some good security there. The bill would Is have been it, able to be transferred on to the sub buyers. So it, you, it, it, it you know, it, it's a, it's a completely different proposition. And I think that's when you, when you look at e-bills through this type of lens, you see that they have the ability to reduce risk considerably, particularly for a, a bank holder. I totally agree with you. And I think that, yeah, that, you know, we'll, time will tell, but I, I, I do suspect that they will start to, they, they will start to become more and more prevalent. And when people, Get used to the systems that use the that use the um, that use the bills. I suspect this they use the e bills. I suspect that they will quite quickly um, yeah permeate the industry. Shall we shall we look in detail yeah. at what happened here then? Yes, Callum. I'm sure I'm, I'm also conscious of time. I know we've got a bit of a hard, hard stop. So why don't you crack on with the first issue? So when I had a when I read this case a, um, a few days ago. Uh, I sent a message to one of my friends who also is a is a lawyer, but not in the not in the maritime world, and I explained to him that uh, there was this case that had been released where effectively a um, a contract was found to not have existed at the time of a breach, but it but there was a breach of the contract, even though the contract only came into existence later on, um, and the conduct that was not a breach at the time was in fact a breach under the contract that didn't exist until later in time. Get your head around that, right? Get your head around that, yeah. And he sent me a message back saying, uh, that's, you know, oh, that's obviously nonsense, how can that work? And then I took a photo of the first sentence of paragraph 87 of this judgment, which reads, there is nothing odd or unfair about this result. Uh, and I thought, there are, it, there are some oddities in this result. It is maybe, maybe if, you've, if you've spent your life in the world of maritime law, then yes, you can say it. In these circumstances, there's nothing odd or unfair about it. But I would, I would argue that this is a certainly an odd decision taken in kind of abstract contractual terms. Effectively, what's happened is BP has this has the, the there's a bill of lading between owners and BP. BP then um, sell the contract to Gulf, and they novate the voyage charter. In novating the voyage charter, they create a situation where the, the, the bill of lading is no longer a mere receipt. The bill of lading stops being a mere receipt and starts being a contract of carriage between owners and BP because the bill is still sat with BP. Um, and it's almost like once the, once the genie is out of the bottle, the, the bill of lading has this separate uh, status as a, um, as a contract of carriage. The bill then goes to, um, goes to Unicredit and sat with Unicredit, the bill remains a contract of carriage. Um, and even if there was a, a conforming discharge under the con under the charter party, that discharge would be in breach of the um, of the bill of lading. That's effectively where the judge gets to, and it's a really interesting trip through um, the history of decisions on this on this mere receipt rule um, 
that gets us there. I don't know like if you want to look yeah. through any, if, if any of them really jumped out to you, any of the kind of cases that he that uh Lord Justice Popperwell goes through. Um I, I noticed that we start as far back as a as a jury trial. I don't think we need I don't think we need to go through all the cases and and many of our listeners who are really into the topic will will get into the case themselves and I'm sure look at look at the principles. Um and this is going to be a case that's talked about. But I think what's what's useful just at a at a high level on a podcast is the w- what is the mere receipt rule and that the the mere receipt rule goes to this point that when the bill of lading is in the hands of the charterer um it's the charter party not the bill of lading that will typically be evidence of the contract of carriage now that can be displaced by a contrary intention in the setup of the contracts that's really important um and the court looks at that here but as at a fundamental level and there are as you say there are a number of cases that look at the principles behind this look at the history behind this why it developed the way it did but the fundamental principle to understand is that um if the shipper is the charterer for example and the um the bill of lading is issued by the owners to the shipper that that bill of lading is not yet evidence of the contract of carriage it is the charter party the courts have also looked at um when it's the consignee who's the charterer um and when the bill of lading is issued to the non-charterer shipper um the bill of lading is evidence of the contract of carriage as between the non-charterer shipper and the uh, and the carrier the owners um and then the question becomes well what if that bill of lading is then endorsed to the charterer does does it does the bill of lading now lose its contractual status um between the charterer consignee endorsee uh, and the carrier or um or, or or not and there have been some cases that have gone both ways on that actually over over time um but i think the ultimate um landing on this is that it is even in the hands of the at least under english law uh the um in the hands of the charter or consignee it is the charter party that still prevails um again that can be displaced by um by the facts of the particular case and um how the co- contracts were originally set up that's at least the position under english law and um what's interesting to understand i think and which what goes to this particular case is when you're dealing with the scenario of the charter a shipper and the mere receipt rule that is that it's the charter party that is the contract of carriage with the with the owners and not um the bill of lading when the bill of lading kind of is passed on when it's endorsed to the buyer you have this concept of something springing to life that didn't exist before this concept of um the endorsee here it's an endorsee bank getting hold of the the bill of lading having paid under a letter of credit and this contract of carriage or at least evidence of the contract of carriage has sprung to life and what what kind of gets unpacked um in this decision is 
what are the circumstances where um, that can happen, where it can spring to life? One out of an operation of contract and how the parties have set up their contracts. But importantly, as the court goes on to look at here under Section 2 of COGSA 92, um, and that there's a, a statutory mechanism under English law that provides for um, the Bill of Lading to have this uh, this character, to have this this function, um, even if it's not set out, you know, super clearly in the con- the contracts themselves um, by the parties. The strange thing here is that the, is that if you have a contract that a contract of or a contract of carriage evidenced in a bill, which springs up um, after at some point, you know, after after being issued. Um, and it springs up in circumstances where the charterer no longer holds the bill for whatever reason. That could be that the, the bill is passed on, or it could be, as was the case here, that the charterer ceases to be the charterer, or the bill holder ceases to be the charterer. In that situation, not only does the contract spring up, but it's treated by by uh, by COGSA as having existed for the entire duration of the carriage. That and that was yeah. the point here where they said, at the time of discharge. When the when the owners discharged the cargo, the they weren't doing anything wrong because the contract of carriage at the time included the obligation under clause thirty point seven of the charge party to discharge without production of the bill. Um, however, when the at, at the point at which there was a, there was a um, this this contract of carriage springs up under the bill and the bill then goes to the to the bank. The bank can then say, we have had throughout the contract of carriage the rights under this contract. And that's the bit which, which to me is a, um, yeah, it's a, a surprising result, I would say, or an odd result to, to use the opposite of um, Lord Justice Popwell's uh, phrase on it. But, but, but isn't, isn't, isn't what, you, what you send to your mate, right? And you say, well, um, I don't know how this works. Isn't isn't the isn't the explanation this? You send him. I'm looking at paragraph eighty three, um, top of page, top of page, whatever it is, um, twenty two or thereabouts. Um, Section two one of Cogsa provides that the lawful holder of a bill of lading shall, by virtue of becoming the holder of the bill, have transferred to him and vested in him all rights of suit under the contract of carriage as if he had been a party to that contract. Yeah. The language of section 2.1 makes clear it operates retrospectively. So you have a, a, an, an act here that provides for the retrospective operation of this contract. It's, it's not you know, it, it, it may seem unusual, it may seem odd, but that is what the Act is providing for, isn't it? And it goes on to say that the endorser is, is put in the same position as if he had been a party to a contract on the terms of the bill from the date of its issue, coming from the Monarch steamship in 1949. Um, so, we've got an Act providing for this operation, right? And I think that's where, as an owner, you have to be so careful. Because the rights that you, the rights that are a holder of the bill obtains under COGSA are pretty serious rights. So if, if you're a, if you're an owner, you have to be very careful that those bills are surrendered to you and they're, pr- and they are properly extinguished before you deliver the cargo up. I couldn't agree more. I think the owners here, well, we'll see if this goes up further to the Supreme Court. Um, 
Uh, wouldn't surprise me. But um, it, it, although the ultimate decision is, is more of a, a a finding kind of question than a legal issue, so we'll see. Um, but I think the owners got lucky here. I really do. In in, in a way, the the evidence presented um, uh, for the bank at um, first instance didn't seem to be all that compelling. Um, I, I I have not. This is pure speculation. Um, but I I suspect the parties were more focused on the legal issues here, and really went hell for leather on the the, the types of topics we're talking about. That was what kind of held the day, if you like. Um, at first instance, and the causation was a classic kind of cover all. Well, if I'm wrong on on the main point, then I think um, uh, I think the owners win anyway on causation type. You know, and I mean that with yeah. respect, of course. Uh, and yet, that's what's ultimately carried the day. And in those cases, I I do sometimes wonder whether you know there's an issue in the causation analysis um, that might go further up to the Supreme Court because that hadn't been the main issue that had been looked at throughout the case. Is this uh, not the, the ultimate in in the kind of adage that facts win cases? Yes. You have, you have this case yes. where it's it, so much of it, so much of the, of, the, uh, of the argument, so much of the judgments are tied up in this fascinating, fascinating legal issue about was you know were the owners entitled or were the owners in breach of a of a contract of carriage evidenced by a bill of lading even in circumstances where they were acting in compliance with their obligations at the time under the contract of carriage that they currently had with the with the party when they were discharging the cargo and it's a fascinating legal question it draws in all of this uh, all this industry in, in submission and authorities and, and historical analysis with the court and then after all of that, you then get to this causation question. You know, you go all the way to the court of appeal and you find out that actually, yes, you bucked the trend. There's nothing odd or surprising about the result, it turns out. And you are, you're in the box seat. And then the judge says, but actually, it wouldn't have changed anything anyway. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and I, I think that's one of the concerns arising from uh, this decision from a bank perspective. Um, uh, is where does this lead if if these kinds of cases can be won or lost on the facts of whether you know the discharge would have been allowed anyway um, by the bank or the bank wouldn't have stepped in and made sure that the owners followed the contract it, you can see how that well I think in my personal view that that can lead to some some quite interesting, factual debates and and making some of these cases really fact specific rather than principle based so i yeah. i do i do wonder whether there's going to be more said on that particular issue and if that particular issue goes up to the supreme court um then i do think the court will look at um the the legal issue uh the, not the legal issue the um the mere receipt rule issue because one of, and I, I come back, I know it's a macro point and I'm making it without getting into the detail of the authorities, but I, I remain of the view that um, the, it, it's, a, it's a difficult proposition when the contracts provide for, an, for discharge or delivery against um, an LOI, when they provide for 
um, the possibility of novating a charter party um, and uh, owners can follow those kind of scenarios and yet still be stung um, on, on the bill of lading claim when that was the whole arrangement here in place. I, I think there's I think there's something that where the, the practice has developed to such an extent where there is an undermining of the bill of lading. Um, but, you know, th- let's see. Let's see what happens on that. Yeah, do you want yeah. to, do, wh- wh- what do you make of that? Taking this, taking where we are with this judgment, if you're in the bank's shoes and the bank has stepped in and effectively the bank has been told that you would not have, um, you wouldn't have taken issue with, with delivery. You would have, you would have accepted that delivery can take place um, if if you had the rights at the right at the time you would have also consented to the delivery and you would be in the same position that you're in now trying to enforce against an LOI. It's very difficult for the bank because the nature of their claim is that they had a right that they didn't know they had, and so they have to ha- have to effectively lay breadcrumbs for an evidential argument to say that had we known we had this right that we didn't actually have until later well that, that we had all the time under law but in practice we only knew that we had had all the time at a later date they would have to have to have you know created the created enough evidence to prove that they would have done something differently if they were in receipt of the of the bill at the appropriate time I mean, maybe one answer is that is that these trade finance banks need to draw up internal policies and yeah. say this is what we would do in these situations, and then you can say, you know, at least you have something where you say this is sitting on a shelf somewhere. This is our internal policy for our situations of delivery against an LOI, and if this case comes up again, then somebody can turn around and say, well, here's the evidence. This is what we would have done. We would have followed policy, and policy is um, it, policy is that we we don't accept discharge other than. Uh, sorry, we don't, we don't allow any discharge until we've been paid. You, you, you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say exactly the same thing. Like, what, what do you do? Well, maybe you, you draft a policy. I can see. You know, I can see see us going to banks pitching. Well, look, you know, do you want us to draft some policies for you to try and get around this? That that is the kind of scenario we're looking at here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think going back to the to to the point of what would the bank have done? Um, let Let's remember what we were saying before about why this practice of LOIs and novating charter parties has been allowed to arise in the first place. It's typically because there are um, sound players in this market yeah. and the, the money ultimately was going to come through from the sub buyers, go for a trader, um, and sub sales had been put in place. Uh, I don't know, it looks like there may have been fraud involved and they fell through or what have you or whether they were even going to be. But in a typical scenario, the money flow is coming through from the sub buyers here. Uh, and would the bank have allowed this just to go through um, so that discharge could happen and the money come through? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe maybe this kind of thing happens all the time um, in this kind of trade because they're not worried about the parties involved and they know that they can make a recovery against these, these various parties. I think that's right. I think that's the that's why the practice has developed as it is. There's a comfort in the size of the and the scale of the parties involved that it's only in very rare circumstances, like the ones here, where you see, yeah, where you see the you see the issue. Um, but it doesn't mean the practice is right necessarily. And, and I think I think that there are interesting practice points for everyone involved in the 
in the kind of commodity side of the of the chain around these these decisions. Yeah, and look, the the ultimate conclusion on causation, um, and just just to be clear, so um, there were six points taken on this um, by the bank as to why uh, the first instance judges reasoning on causation that is that the bank would not have insisted on delivery against the original bill they would have just let discharge happen without presentation of the original bills so that's what the 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 judge at first instance found and this court of appeal said there was nothing wrong with that finding ultimately um and the bank raised six points that were dealt with in rather short order i think yeah um and in concluding on this, one of the submissions by counsel for the bank was that the judge's conclusion on causation would have calamitous consequences for those involved in providing commodity trade financing because it would be open to owners in almost every case in which discharge took place against an LOI without production of the bill of lading to assert a similar causation defence. Judge goes on, uh, 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 Mr. Justice Popwell goes on to, uh, Lord Justice Popwell goes on to say, um, sorry, I'm getting, Mr. Justice Popwell goes on to say, um, if that is so, it is simply the result of the application of conventional principles to which the, to which the practical consequences for market practice must yield. Um, he then goes on to say, you know, would this be as big an issue as uh, as is submitted? I'm not so sure. Um, and that, you know, there are some points arising on the facts. I, I actually think um, counsel for the bank has a point here that um, this is quite a broad issue. Um, but I, I'm, I'm with the court in saying, well, there's so much of the practice that is happening in this trade around bills of lading, LOIs, even novating the charter parties, that does not match up with the legal position of those those contracts. And they undermine the legal status of those contracts at their peril. Because once you start tinkering on the sides with a structure that has been in place for hundreds of years, you can lead to different um, kind of results. And this is one. I think it's... Yeah. I, I, I think it's... I can see where the court's gone on this, I, and I say that with the greatest respect. I totally agree with you. I think it's a it, it's a really interesting case, and it, it will be interesting to see if it goes up. Um, I would I hope that we will be talking about this again, and we should we should get Joe back on, seeing as he did the first instance. I didn't realize that we cut him out. What is going to be really interesting is I I should have done this before the pod, but I'm going to have to go back and see what I said the first time around. I'd probably I'd probably come up. With, I've probably come up with a completely different view that I said the first time around. <laughs> yeah, who, who would be a judge? It's a, it's a difficult thing to have consistent opinion. All right, we'll see. Okay. All right, Callum. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. If you've, if you've got to the end here, um, you've done well sticking with us on bills of loading and LOIs and all the rest of it. So thank you. We do appreciate your patronage and I hope you get some, some value out of our discussions on this stuff. As ever, if you've got some questions arising from this, if you're a bank listening in, get in touch. If your owners a bit with these kinds of issues or got some kind of um, delivery without presentation of bills issues kicking around, let us know. We'd be happy to talk you through some of the issues that arise on this. And um, just as a, as a final little request there at the end, if, if you wouldn't mind subscribing or hitting follow, whatever the button is on, on the channel that you're listening to this on, we would be delighted. Um, until next time, everyone, take care. Cheers, Luke. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye.